Oh, good morning. I love that song. His mercy is new toward us every day. As great as his loving kindness and faithfulness to us. Uh, before I begin, I wanted to mention two things. Uh, first of all, if you were here last week, I announced that the Revelation study is not beginning tonight as I originally had announced. So I'm sorry about that. Uh, I didn't realize that the first three uh, Sunday nights in February presented conflicts to the study, and so it didn't make sense to start it and then skip three weeks and start again. So uh, the Revelation study is going to continue February 23rd, and I do mean continue. We're going to leave off where we left off, and if you've missed back sessions, they are available online. The second thing I want to mention before I jump into what I'd like to talk about here today is I realize that we have... Uh, ones in attendance here that are from a variety of different backgrounds, spiritual backgrounds. Uh, and I recognize that um, some of you are in different places spiritually, and so maybe some of you are searching for, for God or faith. You're you know, wondering what this Christianity is all about. That may be where you are. Some of you maybe are young believers that you've found Christ and you've been growing in your faith. Uh, there are some of you that um, have been Christians for years, and years and years. Uh, this morning's message is gonna be geared a little bit more toward that third group. I just wanted to mention that up front because I believe in order to apply it property, properly, you really need to have a close relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I wanna to begin today with a story that I don't believe I've ever shared before publicly. I don't believe I've ever shared it. It is not a story I'm, I'm proud of at all, but in my defense, I was only 10 or 11 years old, I think, when all of this happened. At the time, my three brothers and I lived in Youngstown, Ohio, or actually the suburb of Austin Town. And at one point, we realized that people in our neighborhood threw away good trash. Uh, they put things out in their trash that, that from, from my perspective, were kind of treasures and it's like they're throwing away this or they're throwing away that and we came up with the brilliant idea of combing through people's garbage to find our treasures. Now why our parents did not stop us, I don't know. Maybe it's that they had been through the Great Depression and I don't know what it was. But they let us do this. We kind of avoided our own street but beyond that everything was pickings whatever, and so we would grab things here and there, and we'd bring them back to the house. There'd be toys or, or maybe a vase or something like that. Sometimes there were uh, TVs out there or other electronics, which, which back then you were allowed to throw those in the garbage. You're not to do that now. But my dad would fix the TVs and electronics. My dad could fix anything. And so we'd be bringing all these treasures home. It was all summer long, every trash day. We were just going up and down the street taking all this trash and bringing it home and then having these garage sales and selling what we found. It all stopped one day when uh, I think I'm the culprit, but I'm not positive. Maybe I should blame my twin brother. But anyway, I saw in someone's garage their garbage by the door. It was in the garage. They had not put it out, but there was, there was a set of dishes on top. It looked like fine china on top of the garbage. And it looked like it was really worth something. And so I, I went in the garage, or my twin brother, 
And um, I, I, I took the dishes and I, I brought them back. And when my dad saw those, he said, where did you get these? We said, well, they were in the garbage, but then as he pressed a little bit, because he said they don't look like garbage, I said, well, actually, we got them out of somebody's garage. It's like, what? <laughs> you went into somebody's garage? He says, yes, we went into somebody's garage and got these. He said, well, we got to take them back. And so, I, you know, we thought, well, it's, I guess we got to do it. So I think my, all my brothers, I think we all accompanied my dad, the four of us, to this guy's house, rang the doorbell, and, and we're holding the dishes in our hands, and, and the person opens the door. I, I, I don't know what they thought we were doing, maybe selling them dishes from their garage. <laughs> but... Um, we explained what we did, that we had taken these from the, the garbage in his garage. And he said, well, those are garbage. I, I meant to throw those away. You can keep those. You can have those. He was incredibly gracious about what we had done. Uh, but my dad would not let us keep them. I think he wanted to teach us a lesson. You don't go into garages and get things or whatever. And, and so he insisted we cannot keep these dishes. Now, maybe in reality, he just didn't want them. I don't know. In either case, we handed them back to the guy. I imagine the guy went right to his garage, put them right on top of the garbage. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, you know, I don't usually talk about garbage, of course, on, on Sundays. And, and it's not a flattering story because we view our trash as something that's kind of gross and disgusting and, and, and we don't want to touch it and we don't want to smell it and especially if it's somebody else's but when it's ours and so here's this situation where we're we're going through people's garbage and getting things and 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 I'm, I'm wanting you to feel just a speck of the grossness of this like you shouldn't we just don't do that I mean I want you to feel just a little bit of that because we're going to continue our series here related to what God is like it's a series called the more you know in the first week of the series, we talked about the fact that God is, that God exists, and I've just made a case for God. Ours is not a blind faith as Christians. There's a lot of evidence out there. If you have a heart to, to just hear it and listen to it, there's a lot of evidence, and so we believe God is. And last week, I talked about the love of God. How if you ask the average person what God is like, they'd say, well, God is love. And, and I specifically last week talked about how to experience God's love in our lives. You know, to really walk in his love, because we know it up here that he loves us, but how do we experience it in here that he loves us? But today I want to talk about the holiness of God. And at its most fundamental level, the holiness of God means a separation. And oftentimes it's a separation from what is disgusting, from what is good. It's also a separation many times between what is secular and what is holy. The first time in the Bible where you read about some, the word holiness happens in Genesis chapter 2. And God has created everything in six days, and then it says he rested on the seventh day. Of course, he didn't go to sleep that day. The word means he ceased from his labor on the seventh day. And then he declared the seventh day holy. He said, this is a, a holy day. This is a set-apart day. So you got your six days, your six secular days, your six common days to do all your work, and then there's this seventh day, and you're to set that one apart. 
Don't treat that day the same as you do the others. It's a separation is what holiness often means. Now, we practice this idea of separation in a variety of different ways, even in our lives today. For example, if you have spoiled food, you want to remove it from the good, right? Every year, we get a box of peaches. It comes from Romney, West Virginia, these delicious peaches. But we don't go through them fast enough every year. And so what happens? They get kind of rotten. And what happens if they're rotten? Well, if they're setting on the other peaches, it ruins them. And so you separate the rottenness. Kind of see where I'm going with this. You separate the rottenness from what is good. If somebody is sick with something that's contagious, you separate, you quarantine the sick person so they don't get the rest sick. Or if there's a part of your body that's diseased that can impact the other parts, you cut it out. About 10 years ago, I had a spot on my, my temple here, right between my eye and my ear, and one of the doctors who comes here identified it as skin cancer. And he said, it's a slow-moving kind of cancer. And I said, well, I'm just curious, how long would it take to reach my eye and what would happen? He said, well, it would take, it would take 20 years. It would take 20 years to get to your eye, but then it would kill, kill your eye. <laughs> You'd go blind. Well, we agreed, cut it out. You cut out the thing that's that's not good to protect the rest of it. And this is one of the ideas behind holiness. It's a separation between secular and sacred, between good, between bad, between what is beautiful and what is detestable. And we try to remove ourselves from things like garbage, the things that can defile us because they can indeed, right? I mean, if, you're, if you have to search, have you ever done this? I'm sure you have. Search for something that you accidentally dropped in the garbage. It takes a whole day to get that smell off your hands. We, we try to separate ourselves from these things. Now, holiness, when it refers to God, talks about his moral excellence. Dr. Elwell, in Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, writes, holiness and the adjective holy occur more than 900 times in the Bible. The primary Old Testament word for holiness means to cut, to separate. Fundamentally, holiness is cutting off or separation from what is unclean and a consecration to what is pure. Now, when talking about God, it means God is sinless. It means he's pure. pure. There's no unrighteousness with him. It means he's just. Oftentimes, the picture of holiness in the Bible is a fire, a consuming fire, a purifying fire. There's no, no wrong with him at all. He's all light. There's no darkness with him, no shadow. He's absolutely perfect. And then there are people. And we're not holy. Now, understanding the nature of God should cause us to understand why he doesn't like sin. It's so inconsistent with his very nature, with its very character, that he looks at various things that are described in the Bible as, as sin. He, he finds those things repulsive. That's God's attitude toward, toward sin. Now, today I want to make really two points, but the main point with two under it is this, that God's holiness... I think at its basis level, God's holiness requires a humble response. When I, 
when I look at the pages of the Bible and I wonder what happens when people are confronted with the holiness of God, it, it results in, in them being humbled. They always find themselves humbled before a holy God, but it shows itself in two primary ways. And that's where I wanna focus this morning. The first one is this, that if we're confronted with the holiness of God, it'll lead to worship. Many times throughout the Bible, as people were met with God and his holiness, they fell down and worshiped. One of the first examples is found in the book of Exodus, where God passed by Moses, and God got a glimpse of Moses from behind, and we read in Exodus 34 and verse eight, Moses immediately bowed down to the ground and worshiped, immediately. I like that adjective, he just got right down there. Soon as he saw the nature of God. Now understand something about God's holiness. We don't have a clue how holy he is. I, I wish there's some way I could illustrate. I couldn't think of any way to illustrate how holy he is. Nobody has ever seen God. Now you say, well, wait a minute. There are examples in the Bible where, where God appeared to people. No, they've, they've seen God in, in manifestations of various kinds. They've seen aspects of God. Nobody has seen God in all his glory. Moses was one who said, God, show me your glory. And God said, no, because I'll show you the back of me, but if you, you, nobody can look at my face and live. Now, that's what our God is like. And it's because he's so pure, so holy. I don't think our human construction can stand it. I mean, the closest thing I can think of is that if you look at the sun, You'll go blind. Your eyes cannot process the sun, and the sun is nothing compared with the glory of God. Some of you have seen the movie with Harrison Ford, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't want to give any spoilers here, but if you haven't seen it, you've had 30 years. <laughs> but there's a scene at the end of the movie where they find the Ark of the Covenant, this this box with the angels that had, Moses had constructed and it represented the very presence of God on the earth and they removed the top of this thing, everybody that looked at it blew up. It's like fire shot out, they all kind of blew up. Like, we cannot handle the holiness of God. And the appropriate response is to fall down. You are God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So David wrote in Psalm 29 and verse 2, ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of his holiness. Now, most translations translate Yahweh as Lord. Worship the Lord. Or ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. But this particular version of the Bible, the Holmans, uh, is giving the Hebrew name for God. This is the personal name for God in the Old Testament. If you read the Hebrew, it'd say Yahweh. It's as though that when we see him in his glory, we should worship him. Another psalmist wrote in Psalm 99.5, exalt the Lord our God, bow in worship at his footstool, he's holy. It's just the appropriate thing to do. Now, one of the clearest scenes of worship in the Bible is found in the book of Revelation, where we have a scene it's taking place up in heaven and God is on the throne and there are these angelic beings that are, beings that are called cherubim. They actually, it says, have six sets of wings, but two of the sets of wings are covering their eyes because they cannot even look upon God. But in this heavenly scene, they're proclaiming the holiness of God and then there are some people up there in this scene as well, 24 people that are called the 24 elders. 
Now, I believe that those 24 people represent believers of all ages. It's a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 family lines of Israel in the Old Testament, and it's a picture of the 12 apostles. And so it's a picture of believers of all ages. So these cherubim pronounce the holiness of God, and let's see what they do. Revelation 4a, day and night, these cherubim never stop saying, holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty who was, who is, and who's coming. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, worship the one who lives forever and ever, cast their thrones before the throne and say, O Lord, our God, you're worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and because of your will they exist and they were created. It's just a natural response. I don't hear anyone saying, you 12 or you 24 elders, fall down and worship. It was just the reflective response to the holiness of God. And I think that we don't worship God better, frankly, because we don't see him clearly or see him in his holiness. Now, we never will in his full glory. But as we get to know our God, especially through the pages of the Bible, it should lead to worship. It's a humble response. The second humble response, though, is this, we'll strive to be holy ourselves. The other response that I see prominent throughout the pages of the Bible is that when people were exposed to the holiness of God, they suddenly became really self-aware of their own fallenness, their own sinfulness. I mean, they just, ah, many of them thought they were going to die. It says that, you know, they said, I've seen God, I'm going to die. They didn't, but that's how they felt, like, you're God and I'm not. In some ways, by the way, the very holiness of God encompasses all of his attributes. He's just so different, so separate, so pure, so everything. In Isaiah chapter 6, though, we have an example where Isaiah saw a vision very similar to the one in Revelation involving these cherubim. And he realized he wasn't pure. These beings began to proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in verse 5, we read... Isaiah's response, then I said, woe is me for I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He suddenly became aware of himself in comparison with the holy God. It's like, I can't, I, I, I'm gonna die. Now it says God forgave him in that moment. God forgave him. I think this is what Paul was getting at in Romans 3.23 when he said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are in this same boat. God in his glory, and, and here we are, and we all sin in many ways. But our response should not be one of despair. We are told in both the Old and the New Testaments to imitate God in, in the area of his holiness. Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 19. He wrote, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Since God is your father and you're a child of God, don't give yourself to the desires you had before you knew better. Before you knew Jesus, there were certain ways in which we lived and conducted ourselves, certain ways in which we did things he says here, do not conform yourselves to, to the way you used to live before you knew better. 
And then he goes on to say, but as the one who has called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, set apart in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And if you address as father the one who judges impartially based on each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your temporary residence. Now, a lot of people don't like this verse. It seems to imply we're supposed to be afraid of God. The Greek word here, by the way, does mean, it does mean fear, but it's much more the idea of a reverential fear. It's, it's not, uh, the image that comes to my mind is that like of a father with his kids. I've got, I've got five kids, and I don't want my kids to be afraid of me. I don't want to walk in the room and everybody cower, right? I mean, what, you'd say, what kind of father is that that walks in the room and everyone cowers? Our God is not that way. That's not, that's not the spirit of this thing. But if my kids were out and about and they were getting ready to do something that wasn't good, I would kind of hope that they'd say, what if dad finds out? I don't want to do that. What if dad finds out? Every kid has had that discussion, right? I mean, didn't, I've said it before. Like, what if dad finds out? What if mom finds out? It's, it's, a, it's a holy... It's fear, but it's not exactly being afraid. It's just this recognition that dad is dad and, and I'm not. Now, here when it talks about recognizing that, that we impartially, uh, or we, we need to be ones who live before an impartial judge, the, the idea of judgment here, by the way, is not eternal judgment. That's not the Greek word that's used for judgment here. No, it's a reference to the rewards. It's, it's standing before God one day as Christians, giving an account for our lives. And he's making the point that you know that one day you're going to stand before for God. And, and keep that in mind, because one day we will give an account for the things we do, but it's about, it's about rewards. It's, not, it's really not about punishment. And the reason, though, that we're to be holy is because... As the next verse says, verse 18, he says, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, from that old way of life you want to be living. You were redeemed from that, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without defect or blemish, a holy lamb. Realize that God paid an amazing price to bring you to himself. To be redeemed means to pay a price to secure the release from slavery. In this case, slavery to the penalty of sin. Slavery from the power of sin. We've been released from that through Jesus. He's just saying, Peter's just saying, no, don't take it lightly what Jesus did for you. He, be, he was the holy lamb. He went the distance for you. He became an example for us. We need to follow his example. And so, though some may lie, if you're a Christian, you're not to lie. Some may steal. If you're a Christian, you're not to steal. Though some may be immoral. If you're a Christian, you're not to be immoral. Now, in the Old Testament, the Israelites had a very visible way of, of understanding this holiness idea that we don't. In the Old Testament, they were given 613 laws. They were given to Moses on Mount Sinai for the Israelites to follow. Some of the, the laws that were given, the 613 Old Testament laws or rules, some of them were moral laws, and some of them were ceremonial laws. Now, understand this. There are a lot of people saying we should throw out the Old Testament because we don't have to do any of that anymore. 
we're still under, from my perspective, the moral laws. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. Those are the moral laws. We're still under those. That's why they're repeated in the New Testament. The ceremonial laws, though, were different. The Israelites were told, for example, that, they, that their clothing needed to be different than the other nations around them. They, they were not allowed to wear clothing of two materials. So this shirt, I'm pretty sure this shirt would be unbiblical. In the Old Testament, it had to be 100% cotton or 100% wool or whatever it was. Why? Do you think God cares about clothing? It wasn't about clothing. It's about holiness. I want you to be a people that by the very things you wear show that you're not to intermix with the nations around you. I want you to be separate. I don't want you to merge those materials because I want you to be separate. Even the way they did their fields was the same. They were told, don't mix two things. It was a picture of the fact the Israelites were supposed to be different than the people in the world around them. Their food was supposed to be different. Even the way they treated people was supposed to be different. And they were told, don't intermix with these other people. Why? You're to be holy, set apart to me. Holiness, by the way, oftentimes is set apart from one thing and set apart to another. So we're set apart from sin. We're set apart to God. We belong to God, we're his holy ones. Now, we don't have to follow those Old Testament laws, so I can wear this shirt. And I can eat bacon, which is wonderful. But... We're to be different. What does it mean to be holy for us? Well, I think first it involves our values. Our values are different than the world, our society in which we live. Our society values money above just about everything, or beauty, or fame is supreme, or pleasure. I mean, some of these things aren't bad in and of themselves, but we don't love those things. We don't worship those things. This is not what we live for. Our society lives for these things. The Apostle John wrote, don't love the world or the things of the world, for the love of the Father's not in you. If you love these things over here, there's not going to be a capacity in your heart to, to love God, be holy, set apart for God. Our values are different than this world. And this is why Peter said, for example, don't let your adornment, a reference to clothing, be merely external, the wearing of gold jewelry and things like that. It should be the inner person of the heart. That's what God values. We value the, the inner person, not the outer person. We value the things that are eternal, not the things that are temporal. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our beliefs should be different. And there are a lot of things that are pushed on us by our society that we're supposed to believe this and believe that, and a lot of it is correct. To me, the issue is whether it lines up with what's taught in the Bible, and if there's a discrepancy between what's taught clearly in the pages of the Bible versus what's taught out there, I'm going to choose what's taught in the pages of the Bible. My beliefs are supposed to be different. I'm a Christian. I'm a set-apart one. And our morals are to be different. And I think this is the one that's fleshed out the most throughout the pages of the, Old Test or the New Testament. It keeps talking about this one right here. Our morals do not come from our society. Our society says that you can have sex with whomever you want, whenever you want, as long as you're consenting adults. That's our society. Do whatever you want. Don't hurt anybody, but do whatever you want. That is contrary to what's taught in the pages of the Bible. In the pages of the Bible, we're to reserve ourselves for the one that we're supposed to marry because sex within the context of marriage makes it a strong thing. It's something you reserve for that person. But we've divorced it from the institution of marriage, so it's taking place out here, and it's ruining 
marriages and you're to reserve your, holy, you set apart, you set, you're to be holy to your spouse, set yourself apart to your spouse. But our society won't buy that line, but we're to be different. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 1 and 2, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. If you want to know how to worship God, I'm yours. I dedicate myself to you, my flesh, my mind, my heart, what I do, my finances, everything. It's all set apart for you. He goes on to say in verse 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed to this age. One version puts it, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Instead, be changed in the mind. Of course, we have to be changed because we lived in the society for so long. We need a change of mind, and I think it takes place primarily, by the way, through the pages of the Bible. So let me summarize this and bring it home. I think the holiness of God requires a humble response. One is worship. But the second, if we're believers in Christ, we strive to be like our God who is holy and we set apart ourselves to him. Now, what I want to say real quickly here is this. What I'm not talking about this morning is moralism. This talk is not about, okay, Christians behave. That's not what I'm talking about here this morning. What I am talking about, though, is a different mindset. I hope we walk away with a different mindset. The Apostle Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament books, more than anyone else in almost every single New Testament book, is written to the saints who lived in this city, the saints who lived in that city. Paul is not writing to dead people. The word saints is the word for holy. He's beginning every single letter with a reminder of the fact you are a set-apart person. I just want you to remember that. You're a set-apart person. I'm just suggesting as we go through life, we walk through life and we say, I'm, I'm a set-apart person. Others can do this, but I can't do this. Paul told Timothy that he should be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Our speech should be impacted by the fact we're holy, the way we live our lives, our conduct, the way we do things, the way we work, the way we handle our marriages. Our love should be different. Our faith should certainly be different. We don't, we don't get all swept away by the despair in our world today and impurity to be an example. Now, I realize this is a process. So someone asked me after the first service, they said, well, I, you know, we're never going to be perfect. I just, you know, they're trying to grab a hold of practically what it means, and I think practically this is what it means. God is working on us, on us to become more and more holy as he points out areas in our lives, as he points out the garbage that we still have there that's sticking to us, the things that we're supposed to separate ourselves from, we deal with that thing. And then he brings something else. It's a process. It does not happen all at once. The ultimate goal, though, is to eventually become like Christ. Now, all this matters, they talk to Christians about this because people are looking on and they're saying, Christians are no different than anybody else. We're the salt of the world. But if the salt loses its flavor, it's worthless. We can no longer impact our society if we've so compromised with the society in which we live. We're called to be holy ones, set apart ones, children of God, God's people. Last thing I want to mention is this. Some of you maybe don't know where you stand with God. 
And perhaps even talking about the holiness of God has exposed within you a, a recognition of your own situation. We can't fix our sinfulness. We, we can't clean ourselves up to, to be holy enough to even make it to heaven or to see God face to face. He's too pure. But God came up with the solution in sending his sinless son into this world to take upon himself the sin of the world. God charged all the sin of the world against Jesus so that it could be buried in the tomb so that God could look at us as completely sinless holy ones so that we could spend an eternity with him in heaven. The only way we'll get to heaven is if if we're holy, if our sins are removed completely, that's the only way we could stand in the presence of a holy God. But you can't remove the sins. I can't remove the sins. We need a savior deliverer. So it's why Jesus came. He died, was buried. He rose again from the dead, proving that the payment was accepted by God on our behalf. We receive this forgiveness of sin, all of our sin through faith in Christ. We come to a point where we say, I know I've blown it. I can't fix it. I need a deliverer. I need a savior. I want to put my, my trust in you, Jesus. Save me. Save me. And he promises to do that. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are holy, that you are different than we are. And so pure and righteous. And we're grateful that despite the fact that you're so holy and we are not, you are willing to bridge the gap that your holy son was willing to become unholy as he took upon himself the sin of the world so that you could declare us holy, so that we could stand in your presence. I pray, Father, that you give us the grace and through the power of your spirit to identify the things in our lives that you want to work on, the garbage that sticks to us that we should separate ourselves from whatever it might be so that we might become more like Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.